and welcome to the Therapeutic Teaching Podcast. I'm Shahana Knight, the founder of TPC Therapy and the creator of the Therapeutic Schools Award and the Therapeutic Teaching Course. And every week I'll be talking about all things related to well-being and mental health in schools. Think of this podcast as your weekly dose of inspirational goodness to go out there and make a real difference in the lives of the children that you're working with. Each week will be full of innovative ideas, inspirational stories, practical guidance and even some freebies so that we can actually redefine what school should be for the children of today. You have so much power to make some real changes so let me show you how. I'm so glad you found me here. Let's jump right in. Hi everyone. Welcome to another podcast episode. Today we're going to look at four ways that children communicate stress that you might not know. So I think this is really important because children are susceptible to stress and sometimes we might think that their behaviour is a choice or that we might get fixated on their behaviour when actually, as always with this podcast, we're forgetting to see what's behind that behaviour. And stress is really prevalent right now. There's a lot of stress going on out there. Children are a lot more stressed than they were before and there's lots of different factors for that. So I think this podcast episode is really important one to touch on because whether you've got children in school right now and you're looking after them in lockdown or whether the children are going to come back to you after lockdown, stress is something we can't ignore. So let's unpick this a little bit more. What types of things could children be experiencing that causes stress? So let's think about them at home first of all. At home things can be quite tricky. So as you know my focus is always childhood trauma and so for those particular children stress could be a number of different things that they're experiencing. Maybe they are experiencing an adult who's extremely depressed and so um, maybe their behaviour is up or down. Maybe one day they're really happy, one day they're really sad. Maybe they're constantly um, down and sad. Maybe they sleep for long periods and the child is witnessing all of this and the stress that comes from witnessing that and being around that is building up all the time. You have other children whose parents drink quite heavily or who use drugs. You have children who pick up the stress of parents who can't afford things and they're struggling financially and every month is a challenge to put food on the table or clothes on their back. Stress could look like parents who are working really hard and constantly working and you don't really get to spend much time with them. That can build quite a lot of stress within your body. It might be that you've got a massive family so you've got lots of siblings and they're constantly fighting or arguing or you're just trying to navigate your way through being a sibling in this big sibling group. You know where do I fit in and how do I be, how am I seen and how am I heard? there might be those kind of issues. It might be simple things like not going to bed on time or being really tired. It might be falling asleep to the TV or using a lot of iPads and a lot of um, social media and a lot of technology. It might be watching scary movies that are slightly too old or um, playing games that are slightly too old. Stress comes in all shapes and sizes and I think also if we think about our current situation as a society right now, stress is also in the media, it's in the world, you know, everybody is stressed to some degree because of homeschool, because of coronavirus, because of family being poorly or not being able to see friends or not being able to go to school and the consistency not being there, you know, constant changes. That is stressful for us as adults. It's also extremely stressful for the children. So stress levels, when we feel stressed, they pump out a load of stress hormone and that stress hormone runs around your body. Now, 
we need stress hormone to be able to deal with difficult things. So if you're in an argument with a sibling, you might get adrenaline of stress hormone so that you can fight back and stay your peace and slam the door and walk out and, you know, not feel like you're being attacked. You can, you can fight back. You might need a shot of stress hormone if you are currently finding yourself without any employment. So, you know, if your parent is unemployed and they will have got a stress hormone because that means that they're now applying for new jobs or they're finding a way to make money that's maybe a little bit more creative, maybe they've set up a new business or maybe they've gone into partnership with someone or something like that. That shot of stress has helped them to do that. So stress is helpful for us, especially if it's in the situation we're in now where there's quite a high level of stress. We're all just trying to survive, aren't we? And it gives you a little bit of insight into what it might be like for those children who are always trying to survive. You know, we're here, we're trying to make sure we can work, we're trying to homeschool, we're trying to manage our jobs, we're trying to manage our mental health, we're trying to manage our sanity, um, our friendships, you know, all of those really basic things that we used to take for granted. And most of us can say that, you know, we were privileged enough before lockdown to have had food on the table, to have had friendships around us, to have felt secure and happy and been able to work and been able to afford things and all of that sort of stuff. And our mental health was okay but that's not the case for a lot of our children and a lot of our adults as well but obviously this podcast is about the kids but for a lot of our children this feeling that we're experiencing right now of intense stress of emotions flying everywhere of one minute being really down one minute being really happy not ever really knowing what the next thing will be what the next announcement will be what the next thing will be how that's going to impact your life that's their life constantly it's not coronavirus, but it's whether dad will be drunk when they come home or whether food will be on the table or whether they're going to be able to afford the heating or what might happen next that's going to cause some danger in my life. What's going to happen next? It's going to be another thing, another battle, another challenge. And that's how they're feeling every single day. Now, when we're experiencing high levels of stress, if that stress is reoccurring and it's constantly happening, suddenly your body produces more and more and more of it because you're constantly trying to stay alive, you're constantly trying to survive, you need that stress a lot more than you did before. You've got very little rest period, you know, very little time for those stress hormones to leave your body. So a way that they might be leaving your body for yourself would be that if Boris relaxed the restrictions and then you were able to see your friends, go for some meals, and you suddenly felt less stress, there was less pressure, you were able to get back to work, that reduces the stress. However, if you're constantly in a state of stress, you're constantly in a state of not knowing, very, very quickly, those stress hormones will learn. There's no point going anywhere because, yeah, all right, I'm back at work, but for how long? How long am I going to be back at work? When's the next disaster going to be? And that's exactly the same for children who are struggling with adverse experiences in their life. And even if they're not, every other child right now is experiencing that too. So stress is really important for us all collectively as a society right now. But what does that look like in our children? When you're stressed, you can feel it. So you know that you're stressed out because you can feel that stress hormone. You might not be able to sleep very well. You might be more snappy. You might be more anxious. You might be more withdrawn and just want to be by yourself. You might feel tired because emotionally you're drained. You might find that you're a bit scatty and all over the place. So you know when you're stressed and you can identify what you do when you're stressed out. For me, 
I have two modes. So I'll either, the first shot of stress, I'll be like, right, we can do this and I'll do as many things as I can to survive. I'll work really hard. I'll find ways to plug those gaps we're not plugging so that we don't falter, we don't fail, we don't not survive. And I'm very good at that. So the stress hormone puts me into fight mode. However, this week, my stress hormone has made me tired and withdrawn and really frustrated. And I actually spent an afternoon in bed because I was just like, I just need to zone out. That isn't me at all, but that's the effect of a year of constant stress. So if you can identify that in yourself, that's fantastic. But what we also need to be able to do is identify that for our children too. Like what is stress looking like for them? How does stress manifest itself for them? You know, we can't feel it. So we have to be able to identify it and see that externally outside of that child or young person's body. And there are some signs like ours, tired, concentration, angry, withdrawn, that we can say, okay, this child's experiencing quite a lot of stress. But there are lots of other things as well that we might not necessarily link to stress. And those are the things I want to highlight in our podcast today. So let's have a look at four of them. So I'm going to tell you what they all are and then unpick them. So one of them is tapping, swinging and can't sit still. So think about children at school, tapping their pencils, swinging on their chairs, fiddling, not being able to sit still, um, finding any small lower level behaviour where it's around energy. The second one is refusing to do things, completely opting out. So absolutely, I won't do that. And for some reason, however that comes about, they just refuse. The third thing is silly behaviour, doing really silly things like silly noises, rolling about on the floor. And the fourth one is distracting themselves, so finding something else that they can do to take themselves away from the stress. So let's unpick those four. The first one, children who are doing like excessive tapping, swinging on chairs, can't sit still. What is going on for that child? So this particular child has got excess stress hormones and chemicals running around their body. So that those hormones have got nowhere to go. And it's just like running around the body ready for the next time they need it. So the next time they might get told they can't come to school or the next time the teacher's not in because they're poorly or the next time they're told they have to stay at home and isolate, whatever it is that's put them in survival mode. And again, this goes back to the brain. For all of these four points, it goes back to the brain. We are in survival mode when we're stressed. We're not in thinking brain. We're not in rational brain. We're in survival brain. And when we're in survival brain, we already know from our previous podcast that we shut down. Our memory shuts down, our recall, our reasoning, our learning, loads and loads and those are things, our ability to regulate ourselves and to control our feelings and our temper and our anger, all of that shuts down and we go into fight, flight, freeze. Now, if you've got a child who's tapping and swinging and can't sit still, it's almost like what you would akin to potentially ADHD in some children, not all children, some children you might start to think about, is this child got ADHD? But actually they haven't. That's just the stress hormone running around their body, all those chemicals running around their body with no release. So it has to come out somehow. Because there's not an immediate danger right there and then, the chemical is just waiting for the next time it's needed. And so it comes out in small low-level behaviours like swinging on their chair or tapping their pencil or messing with their strap on their shoe. And that is a sign that that stress hormone is coming up and it's taking over. And so they're going to struggle to really actually be calm. They're going to struggle with those moments of peace in the classroom or when you're expecting them to do their writing or listen to you or, you know, when you're expecting them to have calm their body isn't feeling calm. Their body isn't able to be calm because when we're calm, that means our rational brain's on. 
well, right now, that's not helpful for this child to survive, to be in rational brain. This child is going to be in survival brain. And so the calm part of the equation can't happen. So that's why you're gonna see them doing low level behaviors. It might be that they're messing with another child's hair or messing with their shoelaces or tapping a pen or looking around the room or doodling, whatever it might be that's excess energy coming out. And actually, they're not being silly. They're not choosing to do that. That's this energy that's in there that needs to get out and it's got nowhere else to go. So. That's a sign of stress. And I think it's an important one because very often we can see that child messing about on the carpet and it's frustrating. You know, we'll say, stop messing with the shoes. Stop messing with so-and-so's hair. Will you listen? Come on, you need to listen. Stop messing with your pencil. And it's constant and it feels like it's a constant battle. And this child's constantly, constantly doing that. And sometimes that can be diagnosed as ADHD. And I find that really difficult a lot of the time because if you have a child who's experiencing severe stress and they have experienced severe stress for years and years and years, that's just a manifestation of stress a lot of the time. Now, I'm not saying ADHD doesn't exist. It does exist. And there are children who definitely do have ADHD. But for the vast majority of children, there are other issues underlying that just don't seem to be being picked up. So if you do have a child in your class who's doing these low level behaviors, what can you actually do? So the first thing I would say to you is reflect back. So as always using therapeutic responses, say something like, you've got a lot of energy today and you're really struggling to feel calm, aren't you? And then give them an outlet. So get them up. There's no point in expecting them to sit on that carpet and listen to you and you to just constantly tell them off about things because that's not helping anyone. Stop for a minute, identify they've got stress hormone, identify that it needs somewhere to go and give them a job. So say, right, okay, Adam, can you get up for me and before we all sit down, can you go and put the pen pots on the table? And then his body's got something to do. If he was an adult, he would be keeping himself distracted and busy. And as much as that's maybe not healthy, it's what he needs right now. You need to be able to do that for him. So get him up, give him a job ask him to go and put the pen pots out or go and take the register and just give him a few minutes to just move his body and to just do something with that excess energy it might be that you um help ask him to do the washing up for example if you've all done an art activity or um, that you can go and help a specific teacher to do something and that will help give the energy somewhere to go the next thing is to try and avoid telling this child off if you're constantly telling the child off for low-level behaviors, but they just can't stop those behaviors, you're only gonna reinforce stress and make it more stressful because then they've got this conflict of, oh my God, I just can't stop tapping my pen. I know that I need to and keep getting tired off for it. But it's an internal state that needs to be settled, not an action. His action is the pen, but your job isn't to stop him tapping the pen. It's to help with the internal state. And so how can you do that? One of the best things you can do is to give him something to help him to feel calmer. Now, obviously, taking into consideration that it must be very, very, very hard for this child to feel calm and to have the opportunity to be calm. If you can build that into his day, give him the opportunity to go and read, say, right, okay, Adam, I can see that you've got loads of energy, finding it really hard to feel calm. Why don't you go and have five minutes in the calm area? Go and read a book put some relaxing music on the headphones, cuddle a teddy, whatever it might be, and then come back to me in five minutes. And it, after that five minutes, I expect you to do your maths and give him a chance to regulate so that he's preparing his brain, he's preparing his mind, and he's decreasing some of those stress hormones before you give him a job to do or before you have an expectation of him. It might be that it's not um, reading. It might be that you ask him to do some calm and drawing or whatever it might be, but something that's gonna help to start to regulate his body and his hormones and his energy so that he can actually engage in learning. Okay, 
The second thing, the second thing that might be manifested in these children that is a result of stress is refusing to do things. So again, we know that when children are in high levels of stress, their brain is shut down. They're not in rational brain, they're in survival brain. When we're in survival brain, we're in fight, flight or freeze and we have high intense emotions. So you'll know this from the other podcasts. Fight mode is when we fight back. Flight mode is when we run away and freeze mode is when we don't know what to do. And those are our default settings when stress hormones take over and things become too much because we're not thinking rationally about how we can manage the situation well because that's in our rational brain. So when you're already stressed, when you've got loads of other factors that are causing stress for you, your brain is going to be in survival mode all of the time because it's ongoing stress. So one of the things that you can do to try and help the stress is to refuse to do things because any more pressure, any more stress that's building up is an additional stress to the stress you already have. And your only way of managing that is to refuse to do the thing that you're finding hard. So if, for example, a child sees that they have a challenge, that challenge might be a new piece of work that they're struggling to do, or it might be that they're struggling with the reading, they've read a few words, some of them are tricky, so they refuse to read the rest, they don't want to read the rest, they disengage, or they're doing a maths problem, they've done a few wrong and they they just don't want to do it anymore, they give up, or um, maybe they don't want to challenge themselves in a relationship, maybe they're outside, they're having a play in a game of um, football or running about in the playground and they've got an issue with a friend and suddenly it just becomes far too much, very overwhelming and they don't want to do that, they opt out, they walk away, they have an argument and that is their survival mode, being able to sort of have that power to say I'm not doing this adds more stress and we know that for ourselves you know have you ever been really stressed out and then you've got another email in your inbox and you think I'm not answering that email or I'm not going to do that tonight I'm not going to add that to my plate that is your way of coping too much stress you know is going to send you over the edge so you avoid the stress or you refuse to do that and that's what our children are doing so when they walk away get really angry when they push chairs over and refuse to do something when they shut down completely and just take ages to do something when they walk out or walk away or take a long time or cry and blame it on something else maybe they've had an argument but then they cry about it later but actually it's not really to do with the argument it's to do with the fact that they're feeling quite stressed out but they'll blame it on the argument or maybe they're doing their work and then suddenly they're crying and they go I'm crying because of granddad who died and you're like you're not but actually they are crying as a coping mechanism. It's nothing to do with granddad in that moment, but it is to do with the fact that they're feeling extremely stressed or they might find an argument. That is a coping mechanism. It's much easier to avoid what's hard, to avoid the, the next challenge. If you're constantly facing challenges, if you're constantly facing challenges, another battle is just something you don't want to do. You don't want to engage in. And that can be difficult at school because it comes across as not conforming you know they're not doing the work they're not doing what you expect they're not getting on with their friends and we don't often read that as stress we read that as bad behavior we see this child and we go why are you walking out my classroom or why are you getting angry and we don't stop to think that maybe this is just another thing that's just overwhelming this child so again let's tweak how we respond thinking about this from a place of understanding that it's a stress hormone and that it's a coping mechanism so again use reflective language identify that for the child if you know this particular child has had a really tricky time at home things are constantly difficult now they've got lockdown things are even harder it's really tough for this child and then they're walking out and refusing to do their work tell them say something like 
you don't want to do it. It's feeling really overwhelming. You feel like it's too much. You just want to walk out. That is much better than saying, why are you walking out the classroom? Come back, do your maths. You cannot walk around the school. Do, 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 whatever it might be. That's all about the behavior, all about the circumstance and not about the child and how they feel. And like I say in every podcast and every training module and everything I ever do, it's always about the feeling. We don't do certain behaviours without a feeling. There's always a trigger and the trigger is usually a feeling. So try and follow through with reflective language. Connect with that child first because if you don't, you're just going to escalate the situation and you're going to create more fight mode or more flight mode or more freeze mode. And if this particular child is walking out, they're in flight mode. They're trying to get away, aren't they? So follow your therapeutic connection policy if you've got one. If your school is still about behavior management and it's a lot of rejection and timeouts and all of those sorts of things, that's not going to work for this child. It's just going to further make this child feel rejected, further make this child feel stressed out. However, if you've got a connection policy where it's about connecting with the child, empathizing with the child, helping the child to understand what's going on for them internally, and then giving them skills and strategies to deal with that, that's the best way to approach it. Maybe they need some calm time. Maybe they need time to regulate. Maybe they just need someone to understand and tell them how they're feeling and say, I get it. It's overwhelming. It's another thing that's really difficult. I understand. Before you expect them to try again or before you push them into doing continued learning, try and do that before it escalates. That's going to create a sense of understanding, empathy, connection, like I say, that's going to help de-escalate the situation and it's going to help the child feel less stressed because you're not you're not another attack. You're not somebody else going. So they've literally just done whatever it is, they've walked out or they can't do the work and then you come over and attack them even more. That's like double whammy. So try not to be that person and try and help to see it from a place of connection. The third thing is silly behaviour. So do you have children who make silly noises? Maybe they sing songs over and over again, say certain phrases over and over again, make animal noises, really silly high-pitched noises. Maybe they mimic other people or repeat what people are saying. Maybe they laugh over really small, silly things that just, it's not funny at all, but they're laughing and think it's hilarious and go on and on about it. Maybe they roll on the floor or do, and look, thinking about my own kids who like are rolling around and like, um, doing silly like gymnastic type stuff around the house or just lying on the floor. I've seen children in schools before in the dinner hall just literally lay on the floor. That is not silly behavior. Now I say silly behavior in place of like naughty behavior. It's silly because it's almost like uncontrollable delirious behavior. Do you know what I mean? Like uncontrollable laughing and saying the same thing over and over again. Actually this is the kind of stress that makes me the most sad. When I see children do this it really gets me because This is the kind of behavior that's going to attract being told off quite quickly. You know, adults will get really frustrated. They'll tell them off. They'll shout. They get frustrated. They get angry and annoyed quite quick because it's pushing their buttons. And so then the child gets rejection really quick. And it makes me so sad because anyone who wants to say something over and over and over and over and over and over again and roll about on the floor, if that was an adult, you'd be like, this adult is not okay that is a child showing you they're not okay and they don't want to behave like that I'll tell you now it makes them feel overwhelmed makes them feel sick it makes them feel out of control and if nobody steps in and helps them regulate that can just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where this child is literally delirious and I just I really don't like it It makes me so uncomfortable so please remember the next time you see a child behaving in that way actually they really need your help in that moment and try not to respond with anger and frustration so instead try if you can give them a hug 
if it's not a school child or somebody that is age it's like inappropriate for their age if it's your child or a child you're taking care of at school that you have are able to do that with give them a hug first and foremost that is what they need because that envelope of someone instantly calms the body it'll regulate the heartbeat it'll calm their breathing down it'll make them feel secure and safe it'll make them feel like somebody is physically going enough of that here i am I'll hold you until that feeling is gone. And that is what children really need. At its really basic core, if you have a kid who's going over and over and over the same thing over and over and over again, go over and give them a hug. Now, my son and daughter, for the last sort of year through lockdown, have had periods of time where they've been like this. So around the time the school's all closed, my daughter, she really struggled. And her behaviour was almost almost like she'd regressed to like like baby stage which is a lot of the time this can be I've not included it yet but baby language as well talking like a baby speaking like a baby using baby language all of that is red flags and that is because this child is going I don't feel safe I don't feel taken care of I don't feel like I know what's going on I feel overwhelmed I feel anxious where is the boundary where is the person who's going to make me um feel secure where is the the security the safety and I mean that in kind of a symbolic way not a physical way like if you know exactly what's happening when it's happening why it's happening what will happen as a consequence etc you feel safe you feel contained if you've got no idea whether you're going to school or not no idea when you'll next see your friends then you told you are then you told you not then you told you can go to the shops and see these people then you told you can't you're constantly in the state of overwhelming it really doesn't feel safe what they need is somebody that just goes I'm going to make you feel safe. And that is very symbolic. It's very kind of, it's all about emotional security rather than a physical action of like putting a wall around someone. Do you know what I mean? But it's similar. So in those moments, children need to feel regulated. I can see when my children are desperately in need of a hug, desperately in need of some sort of um, emotional support because they're not feeling that security and safety so the first thing you need to do is give them a hug it will regulate them it'll make them feel calmer and it will help them emotionally so that's the first thing the next thing you can do failing a hug is to just get down to their level and really connect emotionally ask them or tell them you're really struggling today aren't you come on let's go and do some calming coloring everything else needs to go out the window if that child is doing that if that child's lay down in the middle of the dinner hall on the floor no amount of shouting or telling them off or making them feel bad or trying to guilt trip them into getting up is going to work. You're just going to put them further and further and further into a feeling of being overwhelmed and attacked. Again, survival mode. Instead, reach in and go, I am here to help you. So say you are really struggling, aren't you? Come on, let's go and do some calming, calming colouring because that is not a reward. They need that help. They need that support. If you don't give it to them, who the heck is going to help them regulate themselves? They're obviously dysregulated. They're obviously struggling. Or you might say, Adam, come on, it's time for you to have the friendly bear. The friendly bear is the incentive for emotional intelligence building that I always suggest in some of my training. So you have like a big bear, like an oversized bear in the classroom, one that will comfortably sit on the child's knee and they can give it a hug, failing the fact that you can't physically hug the children. So you give them the friendly bear and you say, right, you need the friendly bear and the bear, the hug of the bear helps to regulate them. And the children can then opt in to give their friend the bear. So they might say, miss I think Adam really needs a friendly bear and then the friendly bear will come down and Adam will have time with the bear and that helps to build emotional intelligence and understanding again what we don't want to do and this is a bit of a side point we don't want to make these children the other children the other 30 children in the class look at Adam and go he's been a bit naughty what's up with Adam we want to build empathy 
we want to build understanding and that child knows full well that when they're feeling overwhelmed and they go home they use baby voices too they're silly too so we don't want to scapego adam and make adam like the naughty one in the class because actually adam's a great example of what we do when we're stressed out and we need to utilize that lesson so the friendly bear helps us to do that we start these conversations around okay guys can you identify someone in this class who's feeling like they need some time to regulate? What is regulation? It helps us calm down. When we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling stressed, and this friendly bear will help us to do that. So then they start to opt down. They go, actually, I can see that Adam's really struggling. That's not Adam being naughty. That's Adam needing some support. And then they give Adam the opportunity to say, Miss, I really think Adam could do with the friendly bear. Straight away, you develop an emotional intelligence. So we don't ever want to make children feel like when they struggle with their behavior that all they're going to do is be met with rejection and that that's a bad thing we all struggle with our behavior it's a much better lesson to teach them how to appropriately manage that behavior and how to have empathy for other people and support them with theirs that's going to create much happier healthy well-rounded individuals for the future that's a real life lesson so just to pull those points together children who are being really silly with their behavior give them a hug if you can't give them a hug, find a way to say a therapeutic response about understanding how they're feeling and give them something to do to regulate them. Calming colouring, friendly bear, time in the tent, a blanket, whatever it is, because they need some physical, emotional support there. And the final thing is distracting themselves. So some children use distraction as a safety mechanism. It's like a coping mechanism. The child might be feeling really overwhelmed. And again, it's much easier to avoid those overwhelming feelings by doing something to distract them. That might be talking to a friend, not working, saying they need to go to the toilet all of the time, whatever it might be. You might have a child in your class who's constantly going to the toilet, constantly wants a drink at the water fountain, wanders around the classroom a lot, talks to people all the time when they should be working. That distraction is helping them to manage the stress hormone. It's like a little tiny bit of relief. And I think we mentioned this in the last podcast. It's just a snapshot of relief that just takes that pressure away for a second. Being able to go to the toilet and have a break, the distraction is helping. So let me just put this into context for you. I hope I've not told you this story before. So my son, he's now five. When he was two and a half, he got a really serious skin condition. Now, the skin condition meant that he was extremely itchy. His skin was flaking, it was peeling off, he was very sore, it was full of sores all over him from head to toe. It was a really horrendous time. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's not about that, but it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice for him, it wasn't nice for us, and he was constantly distracted by wanting to itch he wanted to literally itch the sores so then he would bleed and it was just it was absolutely horrendous honestly can't even tell you it was the worst time and he experienced that for 18 months so what's that like two and a half to four years old like he only really started to recover from it this time last year like january time so he's had about 12 months of being absolutely fine but his coping mechanism to try not to scratch and to itch and to avoid that intense feeling of like what I can only imagine is burning and ants all over his body was to distract himself. So he went from being a really kind of attentive, engaged child who would spend ages on an activity, was listened really well. I mean, it was only two and a half, but he was really great at like paying attention to stuff he developed a skill of distraction. So for example, he would be getting himself ready in the morning and 
it would take him absolutely ages because he knew if he just focused on getting himself ready, that itch would become so overwhelming that he would just literally start sitting there itching. So he would distract, he would put a sock on and then play with a toy and then change the music. And then because he needed to keep himself busy to distract from all that stress that was running around his body and that feeling of just wanting to itch. And so over time, that helped him to stop scratching it helped him to develop a mechanism whereby he wasn't going to then get into the cycle of scratching and that was helping him to release some of the stress. But what happened was as a result of that, he went from being a really focused little boy to being a very distracted little boy. I was really fearful, you know, he was only four when he went to school when he was in reception. I was really, really fearful that he would find it really hard to sit down on the carpet because we were finding that he was just constantly distracted. He wouldn't sit at the dinner table and eat his food, he wouldn't get himself dressed. It took him ages to do his teeth, everything was like a chore for him. But we knew that it was because he developed this coping mechanism. So then he found himself picking things off the floor or walking away or talking to people. And that was his coping mechanism. So what I'm saying, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again. What I'm saying is that sometimes for these children, distraction is actually the only way that they can cope. Going for that drink of water, yeah, it's the fifth time. It's not about the water. It's that mental break away from something that might be really tricky. So maybe the classroom's really noisy, the work's really hard, maybe they're just feeling overwhelmed in general, and that break of being able to leave the room, close the door, walk to the corridor, get the drink, walk back, is the break that they need. And that tiny bit of time reduces some of the stress hormone. So distraction is also a sign of stress. So again, how can you help? So re-engage them gently, try and find a way without confrontation, because that's gonna make them shut down to re-engage. So can you go over and tentatively re-engage the back in the work? Can you tell them a story that's linked to the work? Can you um, give them a job to do that's in the classroom that's gonna help pull them back into work? So I don't know what that might be. Maybe you're about to do a painting exercise. You can see this child wants to go to the toilet. They don't really need the toilet. So you can say, do you wanna put the paints out? That's gonna help re-engage them back into the work. And the biggest one I would say is avoid buzzwords. So with this particular child, you are going to find yourself saying, stop messing, you can't go and get another drink, don't go back to the toilet, you don't need it, or no. Those are buzzwords. You'll have heard me talk about this before, but it's relevant now. So no, don't, can't and stop are buzzwords. When you're in your survival brain, if somebody tells you, no, you can't do that, don't do that, you can't do that, or stop doing that, straight away you only hear that word and your brain shuts down. So you go, right, this is confrontation, this is somebody challenging me, I need to go into survival brain. So what do you do? You fight back, you go into flight mode, or you freeze. So if we're trying to help a child to not distract themselves, which is a form of flight mode, by saying no, don't, can't stop in whatever scenario you're in to try and help me engage them isn't gonna work. You're actually just gonna shut them down even more. So try and reflect back if possible. So say, you really wanna go and get another drink, maybe it's a bit overwhelming in here. Highlight that, give them the insight into their own feelings, teach them about what's going on for them. Then we engage them, come on, let's go and put the paints out, you can help me to do that job. Get them back into learning and try and avoid saying no, don't, can't stop. All right, so these are really quick, simple tips. Hopefully there's stuff in here that you didn't know before and please do try and use these things with the children when you find yourself back in the school environment because it's going to be a massive difference to these kids and it's the difference between disconnecting and having them disengage or really connecting and re-engaging them back into learning and if there's anything we need to do right now it's to help these kids manage their stress. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode and I'll see you in another episode very soon. 
I hope you've loved this week's episode of the Therapeutic Teaching Podcast. If you want more help and support to become a therapeutic teacher, but don't know where to start, then head to tpctherapy.co.uk and enrol in my free course now and get started.